What is the science of reading? What are leaders doing to accelerate reading achievement? We answer these questions and more in Science of Reading Leadership, Guiding Minds, Transforming Lives, powered by Just Right Reader. Hello, hello, and welcome to the podcast today. We are thrilled to have our guest, Jeff McCoy, with us. Jeff McCoy is the Associate Superintendent for Academics at Greenville County Schools. Throughout his career, he has been an International Baccalaureate Coordinator, an Instructional Technology Specialist, Distance Learning Coordinator, Director of Instructional Technology, and Director of Academic Innovation and Technology. So lots of different experiences and wisdom that you're bringing here today. Jeff, welcome. We're excited to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So many things that you have done, like it's impressive. So how did you get into education? So I would say um, probably like many people, actually, my journey actually started back in my when I was actually childhood. I'd always wanted to be a teacher, did the whole, you know, playing with your stuffed animals, teaching school, um, doing all that, even from an early age. Um, and then I taught um, several years in the classroom and um, was always incorporating technology in my classroom. And so um, the director of instructional technology at the time um, kept asking me, why don't you come to the district office and help train teachers on how to use technology and all of that. Um, and so finally, when the time was right, um, you know, I finally accepted that offer um, to go to the district office um, as a facilitator. And I love my time working on the technology side and really helping teachers integrate but really miss the the stronger curriculum connection side. Um, so, you know, 10, 12 years ago, asked about my superintendent about moving, if there was a position available, moving over to the academic side. Um, and so actually got a great opportunity for two years where I actually bridged the gap between technology and academics, um, which was a kind of an innovative position. That was my innovative um, academic innovation technology position. Um, we've retained that. We still have that position here. It's an incredibly valuable position, um, just being able to talk the talk of both sides of the house to, to bring them together. So um, and then took this job about, I guess, eight years ago um, as associate superintendent um, fully on the academic side. So. All right. Yeah, that um, that academic and the the instructional technology piece and the, that you talk about bridging is so incredibly important as we continue to to see more and more technology. And then also now we kind of have more of a push for those, you know, hard copy <laughs> um, going back to some of the basics, too. So tell us a little bit more about Greenville County Schools in South Carolina. So Greenville is the um, largest um, county in South Carolina. We're about 79,000 students. We're a very um, fortunate that we're, uh, we're a high growth district still. We still grow 1,000, 1,500 kids a year um, in Greenville. So it's a, you know, Greenville, it's a um, kind of explosive town right now as far as growth goes. Um, so we're um, surprisingly to a lot of people though who've been to Greenville, we are actually sitting around that 58 to 60% poverty um, for our students. Um, a lot of wealth in Greenville, but the students who attend our schools actually are about 58 to 60% poverty. Um, we have a large ML population um, as well, um, 15 to 20% MLs, um, it, it's, um, second language students as well. A lot of language spoken um, in Greenville. So despite a lot of people's perception when they come, um, Greenville is actually a very diverse city, um, has challenges, but also has a lot of um, pros and a lot of um, positives that are going on for us, um, both in test score, test score growth um, and I think the diversity of our community. 
that's fascinating um, to hear uh, the the differences in your population. I think that there is a large misconception when you hear Greenville. I appreciate you highlighting that and bringing that to light. So I want to know a little bit more about the evolution that Greenville went through as it relates to literacy um, and the work that you all were doing with that. Yeah, so I, when I was in a structural technology um, back in the day, um, I would say that was about three associate superintendents ago. Um, they moved from four blocks, some people will remember four blocks, um, to the balanced literacy model. Um, so that was probably 15 years ago or so, um, <laughs> maybe 20. Um, and so, you know, I, I remember being here for that challenge of four blocks was a very structured you know, kind of model for our teachers. And I remember moving from that and kind of the difficulty teachers have because balanced service is a lot more uh, kind of open and, and not quite as structured. So, you know, moving from that model to a very structured model, uh, structured to a non-structured model was, it was a challenge. It was difficult um, for our teachers. Um, when I took over in associate superintendent eight years ago, you know, when I did kind of my little listening towards schools and teachers and, and even my academics department themselves, you know, one of the things they said was the difficulty. They didn't feel like they had the resources to implement the balanced literacy at the time. Um, they felt like they were still a little lost in the balanced literacy as far as what they needed to do and the structure and all of that. And so, you know, I've always kind of been very honest with my team. When I came in, I wouldn't have necessarily chosen the model that we had that was in existence. Um, but as, as people know, in large districts and when you've invested a lot of resources and, you know, it wasn't that our kids weren't learning. They were. Um, we were having success. We were having increased test scores year over year. Um, but we did take a very hard look at what about those kids that weren't succeeding? Why, why were certain populations or certain groups of children not succeeding in literacy at the same rate? Um, so really took a look at that. And. Even back then, eight years ago, what we did was we really recognized in the balanced literacy model that there was a phonics deficit, um, that we really felt like that was something that was missing. And so, you know, we um, then we, we underwent letters training at that time for a cohort of teachers um, and trainers to be done. Other schools implemented. We gave them some choice, some other phonics programs they could implement as well. Um, so even from that back early time, eight years ago, I wouldn't have said, and I still don't ever say, even though we've changed more over to science of reading, I've never said we were, we were a pure balanced literacy district because um, we kind of looked at looked at the good things and then looked at kind of the weaknesses and said, we're going to fill these gaps with other things that we know work with children. Jeff, when do you feel like you, it sounds like you've kind of always recognized the value of you know, assessing where you are, assessing where there might be holes. When did you kind of recognize the either the value of the science of reading or, you know, even just knowing about that body of research? So my journey on that really was before I became associate superintendent. I was, was in the position of executive director of academic innovation and technology. Um, I worked under, you know, a brilliant associate superintendent, then um, Dr. D.D. Washington, um, who's still one of my very good friends today. Um, and I think even she recognized, um, or no, she did. We had a lot of conversations about, again, she may not have chosen that same program when had she been the one to choose it, but she wasn't. It was something we inherited. Um, so we made the best of it um, that was there and tried to fill in those gaps. I really started because of my background, I was elementary certified, but I have only taught middle school. Um, so, you know, not we don't do a lot of uh, <laughs> reading. 
right. um, school grades. <laughs> so I really had to kind of pour myself into the executive director, kind of learning, okay, what, what model would I choose? And that was not just focusing on science array. That was kind of looking at the body of research out there. Um, and I felt even then looking at it, we try to keep this as a philosophy even now that we're not really, we don't tag science of reading as a program as much as we tag that as a body of research um, of best practices. Um, so that was kind of when I really kind of started my journey of really learning in depth, really more how children read and kind of the science and research behind the best practice of how kids learn to read. That's fascinating. And it's really exciting because when you really start to look at all the research that is out there and you really start to find what's going to be beautiful and the best fit for your demographic and your students and really seeing all of that come together is like a magical thing that happens, right? Um, what would you say that your goals are around literacy now in Greenville? So uh, two or three years ago, um, when kind of the, I don't want to say the light reading wars started again, but when the whole reading wars started again, you know, we kind of made the decision we weren't going to tag it as anything. We were going to call it the Greenville County Schools Literacy Framework. Um, so that from this point on, it really is about the body of research on how children read. And, you know, again, there are some parts of balancers that work well for our kids. And so, you know, pulling the best practices that work for that with some kids, but then, you know, that science of reading, um, cause there's a little overlap there on certain things. And so, you know, pulling over some of the, then the science of reading to build our literacy framework, it is going to be hot, heavier now science of reading, um, than it is anything else, but really trying to keep that, you know, that. So we're not doing that pendulum swing constantly on teachers um, so that no matter what changes come in the future or what new research may emerge to say, hey, this actually works really well with kids. It's not a new thing. It's not something new program. It's it's just part of the body of research as part of the Greenville County Schools literacy um, framework that we do. So that for us was kind of when we started shifting a little bit and just saying, let's let's pull the bandaid off now, if you will. Let's kind of start making this harder shift, but let's not tag it as a program so that 10 years down the road, we're doing this whole big shift again. This episode is brought to you by Just Right Reader. Extend phonics instruction, strengthen school home partnerships, and accelerate reading achievement with take-home decodable packs from Just Right Reader. Personalized take-home packs make phonics fun and accessible for families. Every book comes with a video phonics lesson and writing pages to help readers reinforce their decoding and writing skills. To learn more, visit JustWriteReader.com. What you're saying is really how good education happens, right? Not ripping away all of the things because this is the trend now or not ripping away something because this is taboo, but really trying to say, okay, I hear all that's happening. There's a lot of best practices, what's working and what can be adjusted. And when you do that intentional work, you come up with a framework for our students that works and we see results. And I guess my question from that would be, um, you talked about teachers and the challenge of you know bringing them on board and letting them see like, this is okay, we can do this. But then on the other side, how have you seen success coming from that? Like, what is the successes that you can point to, like, this is working for us? So I, the biggest success, and so you asked that question, because we're getting ready to um, go to our board for some 
um, additional stipends for teachers, all teachers K through three to go through letters training um, because the state is mandating that. So the state is mandating from K to three letters training. We had nine schools actually started um, two years ago. Um, and so we've gone back to those schools and say, you know, give us some feedback, give us some quotes we can use about, you know, whether how this is impacted, if it's impacted your work. And one of the things the teachers have said, um, the ones that we've gotten quotes from has said, you know, it really gave me a sense of now, again, that whole why kids learn, how kids learn to read, but really gave me the um, skills that I needed to actually diagnose why kids aren't reading. Um, and I think that was the big missing part in the past. That it wasn't about, um, you know, they, a lot of times teachers would tell you, oh, they can't, Terry can't read. But then when you say, well, wh what do we need to work on with her? What skills do we need to give? What, what, what needs to happen intervention? They a lot of times could not pinpoint that it was a specific reading issue or in some cases a disability. Um, but, or it wasn't a point, one single point of, well, they are not decoding correctly. And that's why that's leading to this. So those teachers have kind of recognized now completing that training that this is like what I should have had in college. Um, and this is really what I should have been prepared to go into my classrooms with and do. Our principal actually, two principals that um, commented on it, both of them said, one's a 30 year veteran in education. She said, you know, that letters training, that training I've gone through with this has been the best training in 30 years as an educator I've ever received. Um, and I feel so much more equipped to actually diagnose and for teachers ask the right questions to a teacher um, to help diagnose a reading problem. Jeff, did you have all of your administrators go through letters? So they will be. Um, the nine schools that had to go through it um, because, because of where their performance was, all of those administrators, actually that entire school went through it. So all teachers, all administrators, instructional coaches, everybody. Um, for the new state requirement coming down um, that will start in the fall, all teachers, all administrators, instructional coaches will also go through that training as well. As someone who leads you know, instruction, right, for an entire district. Um, I think some of the benefits would be obvious of having administrators go through letters and that type of training with their staff. But what specifically have you seen? Well, I think, you know, initially you have to know as much as the teachers know in that regard to give instructional feedback that results in improvement. Um, so not a shorter course in this area, not a, you know, like we do sometimes. Um, this actually had to be the actual course. So they understood the same case because most of us that were even trained in elementary, not, I would, I would argue probably none of us would say we were adequately prepared in college to teach reading to students. Um, so for us, what we see now that leadership kind of what one of our principals said is that she has a whole new take when she walks into the classroom and she's watching reading instruction. She has a whole new take now and knows the questions to ask to say, Christy, why are you? So explain to me how, why you're doing that or why you, you said this or you, you know, whatever happens to be. She just knows the questions now that she asks and can ask. And it's also important her to understand and know the difference between having, now that we're shifting away, you know, also being able to shift and understand the difference between the balanced literacy strategies and the science of reading research strategies and what we should be using. So she needs to have an in-depth knowledge to do that. Everybody, it sounds like you're saying everybody is now on the same page. And so that the conversation is beneficial to everyone because everyone's speaking the same language. Yes. And I think even from the top down, one of the, you know, my team, my directors of elementary, my specialists have taken or are involved now in the letters training. I'll be doing it this fall as well, starting in the summertime to do the letters training. I've not had it myself um, as well. So I think from, from all of us, from the top down, being able to speak that language and the importance of 
what we do in the classroom to help teach students how to read um, really by third grade, but whenever that happens, but certainly as our goal is by third grade. So then what would your advice be or um, how can we get other leaders to buy into the science of of reading? Well, I think it's looking at, I think anybody who looks at the body of research, um, you know, I've had the, you know, um, privilege of spending some time with some of the authors of the, you know, the research and that kind of thing and some events that we've done. Um, and I think when you look at that body of research and put aside your own assumptions of, you know, everybody has an opinion because everybody learned to read somehow. Um, everybody was trained somehow. Um, and so, you know, but I think if you set that aside truly about how I learn, because every child does learn differently, but set that aside and really dive into the research on what the research actually says. I think most people would come to the conclusion that this body of work and the research really is strong and really not to say it's going to work for every child, but that's why we have other strategies that we can use and pull in that might work. Um, but I think that whole collection body of research, there's something in there, to, I believe, to help every child learn to read. Absolutely. And yeah, I like how you said that, too. It's really a lot of cognitive cognitive dissonance happening, I think, because we have invested, schools all over the country have invested billions of dollars, right, in training teachers to teach reading in a certain way. And then to kind of be like, hey, we're actually looking at some some research and we're looking at some science. And and that wasn't the best way. That would be really hard to unlearn and undo. <laughs> and it is. And I think, although I've been pleasantly surprised, the teachers even that have not gone through the training, when we rolled this out and said, Ugh, a lot of our teachers had already met this, the current state requirement for read to succeed, which was some courses. Now they have to go back and say, oh, I hate, you know, you have to go through this new training and letters. But most of the teachers actually, even though they haven't had the training, was like, have been like, I this is great. This is what I need to be. I think this is going to be so much more valuable for me. So those nine schools, there's been, you know, a lot of communication, I think, back and forth. And so I think those teachers realize and they kind of expressed that, hey, this is really good training. It's really helped me in my classroom that really has helped kind of spread it across the district to now where teachers are kind of like, okay, yeah, it's two more years of coursework, but if it's going to help my kids, is that valuable? This is what I need to do. And it's best for kids. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you see the results so quickly once you start teaching in that way. So um, Jeff, we'd love to know a little bit more about um, what the role of the family is in supporting the literacy journey in your school district. We actually started trying to engage the parents even in the summer, um, particularly for those parents that had to send their kids to summer school. But even the ones that didn't, that were close and maybe couldn't attend summer school for some reason, we started a website that really gave the parents some options. Say, hey, here's how what you can do to teach your children or reinforce at least some of the skills that kids are learning in um, their classes and literacy and reading. Um, to try to boil that down to very simple things, knowing that parents are not educators, but most parents, if you say, hey, if you can just read and ask these questions to kids, looking for that comprehension piece, or when a kid gets stuck using these strategies to help the child figure out the word, um, that was what, something we started trying to do very simply in the summertime. That is carried over into the school year as well. And we try to really encourage our schools to partner with families. Um, most families will do what you tell them to do or ask them to do if they know what to do. Um, but most families, most parents don't know how to teach reading. So give them the simple strategies, give them the simple, just, I mean, basically, even basic, if you just read to your kid every night. But, you know, for those parents who are willing and able to take it to that next level, hey, here's some strategies you can use to actually when your kid gets stuck. 
But um, we do in our Title I schools, particularly we have parent um, involvement coordinators. So we have parent nights and things where kids, I mean, teachers can come in and work with the parents on here's, hey, here's how you can teach your kid um, to read um, or to become a better reader. Um, so I think it's transparency. I think it's communication. I think parents deserve um, the right to know where their child is when it comes to reading. Um, even if they're in first grade and they're a little bit behind, parents deserve to know that. Um, and most parents will be willing if you say, hey, if you could just work with your child on this and do this, that's really going to help them become a better reader and we can get them back on grade level. And I honestly think that the science of reading and like you said, letters training and all of that allows teachers to have the 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 know-how, the answer to the question of how do I help my child, right? I think before we were all just kind of trying to figure out what that looks like to help your child. So that question was a challenging question. It was a tricky question. And now we have solid hands-on, this is how you can help. And I think that that's empowering to all of us, teachers, administrators, parents, and students. And I think that that's really exciting. Jeff, I have to ask, you know, districts all across the country are, are doing similar things. They're having teachers go through letters. They're adopting new materials. What do you think the difference is? Because not everybody's seeing those same results. So obviously you've got hardworking teachers. Do you think that there's a common, obviously it's a combination of things, but if you had to pinpoint what you think might be different about what Greenville's doing. So I think it goes back to our multi-tiered system of support philosophy. Um, when we put that in place six or seven years ago, we kind of emphasize and have since then that tier two and tier three instruction is also the job of the tier one teacher. Um, so you have to own all three tiers. Uh, what we did during the pandemic though, teachers know that they have to own the three tiers. But during the pandemic, we actually doubled and tripled our interventionists with our ESSER money because we knew that strategy worked. We knew we were getting gains from interventionists that we put in place. And so gradually over the last few years, we've been reducing those interventionists now because we don't have as many kids that are in need of that. But that tier two, tier three starts with a core one teacher. And then certainly in addition to many times we are sending a student out, um, not during core instruction, but we are sending a kid out um, to get that intervention in that intensive re intervention to be able to catch them up maybe from where they need to, from where they are to where they need to be. So I think part of that was just a strategy and how we use our ESSER funds to really use them towards something we knew already worked. And we just doubled down on that strategy. Yeah. Well, it's so smart too, to, it sounds like you had the foresight too, to know, Hey, ESSER funds aren't going to be here forever. And so having kind of a, um, I don't know if the right word, but an escape plan, essentially. Um, or a strategic um, plan. Yeah, decreasing the need for those interventionists, uh, interventionists. So that was really smart. Yeah. And then I also heard you say um, during the conversation that you didn't just throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. You really did think about what was working and kept that. And I think that that's another strategy that worked in your favor because there was something working. And and in continuing to do the things that were working and then adding other things that are working just doubled the goodness. All right. So um, we always go in and we always end our podcast with a question that kind of brings all of this together. So the question is, what two leadership actions can district leaders take to support in their literacy development? So I, I would say, and this probably applies to anything, not just the liter literacy development piece, but I think always um, be patient. Um, and, and, you know, 
we're masters of that in a large district because as much as I like to things to happen immediately, it's like people say, it's like turning a cruise ship. I mean, it takes time and it doesn't happen as immediate as you want it to happen. So that patience and being able to patient and reserve that space for the frustrations that are come naturally, not because teachers don't want to do what's best for kids, but because they oftentimes are put through the pendulum swings and you got to do this now and then they got to do this, and you got to do this. So I think the patience of actually showing them, here's why this is best for your kids. And here's the results we've had by doing this in other places. And most teachers are going to get on board with that. Um, and then the other thing, I think just be flexible um, and reserve that space. As leaders, I think we have to, when teachers need that vent time, they need that frustration point, um, or they need we need to give a little flexibility because not all teachers learn at the same rate as our students learn. Um, um, they're very similar to our students. And so giving that flexibility of, you, you need a little bit more time, Terry. We'll need a little bit more coaching or some support that we can provide you to help you be more successful in this. I think would be the two things, again, that kind of apply to everything, not just literacy, but it certainly applies to our journey of kind of shifting away from one, um, you know, one pedagogy or philosophy to another. Awesome. Patience and flexibility. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for being here. Um, do you have any sort of online professional learning network where people can find you in terms of maybe a Twitter or LinkedIn? <laughs> so I'm both. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. The same um, same Addy there. It's uh, J McCoy GCS is my both my Twitter and my LinkedIn account. All right. Well, go ahead. You can find Jeff McCoy online if you'd like to keep the conversation going. Thank you so much for being here. We have truly loved learning from your experiences and your wisdom. And just thanks for sharing your uh, thoughts with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. If you found this conversation valuable, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We will see you next time on Science of Reading Leadership, guiding minds, transforming lives.